Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, listener, and welcome to Jumpers for Goalposts. Now, today we go back to an amazing year for pop culture. The Teletubbies hit the small screen. A wizard by the name of Harry hit the bookshelves. And Phil Mitchell hit the bottle for the very first time. That's right, it's 1997. We take a close look at the month of September. This week's Premier League action is a tasty affair between Chelsea and Arsenal. Dan tries to control his excitement at the thought of a matchup between Ronaldo and Batistuta as Inter take on Fiorentina. And this week's match of the week comes from Celtic Park. Back in 1997, UEFA Cup ties were free to air on the BBC and the nation was rewarded with a Tuesday night treat between Celtic and Liverpool. So, what are we waiting for? Let's get going. Sorry, Rowan, he punts it long. Oh, Villa, good leg out with a diving header back to Bosnich. Oh, but it doesn't have the legs. Bosnich, he's came out. He's taken Biano out of it. Surely a penalty. No, Biano on his ass. He swings the boot. Goal! Biano says thank you very much to Ugo Egeog and Bosnich. And Bosnich wearing a grey kit. He looks like a putty from Power Rangers. Derby lead in Villa Park. 1-0. Now, these next two men love watching local amateur football. It's got a bit out of hand recently though when Dan decided to record up the stats for an amateur game at his local park. After the game, Dan confronted the clabby strollers left back and barked. You are an absolute disgrace. You've only ran 150 metres in 90 minutes and your pass completion is only 20%. A brawl ensued. Dan got a lifetime ban from that local park and the left back is out for at least 12 weeks with a very bad ankle injury. That's right. It's Daniel McIntyre and Connor Elliott, also known as Dan and Mush the Matchman. How are we doing, lads? The best. Very good, Stephen. Thank you. Have you found a new local park, Dan, to go and watch a few amateur games? I'm having to go through local councils due to the ban, so I'm just waiting for a few of them to get back to me, but fingers crossed. Fingers crossed you'll be allowed in. So, lads, today we go back to September 1997. Dan, have you got any fond memories of this period of 1997? I do indeed, Steve. Uh, I um, had put some birthday money to one side and I was looking for a new pair of football boots to bring in the summer. And I went to a local sports shop in the shopping centre called Instep. I don't know if anyone remembers that. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. And I got myself a beautiful pair of Puma Kings. And I had a wonderful summer uh, wearing and turning about with them, playing football with all my friends. So yes, great memories of 1997. Great stuff, Dan. Mush, you have got a lovely retro football jersey on for us today. Is it blue? It is, Steve. It's a lovely, vibrant, rich blue colour. I'm sure Crown Paints will give you the exact colour if you want to contact them. It had a big, bright, bold yellow colour, which Delivio loved to stick up. Each sleeve had a giant star design, one star having the old lady crest in it. Uh, The kit sponsor was Italian King's Kappa. By God, they sponsored many as a kit in the 90s. 
and it was also sponsored by Sony Minidisc. I'm sure some listeners had one as they strutted their stuff down the street listening to Now 38. Also, the Italian crest was on the front. The men gifted to wear this beautiful kit were Brindelli, Ulio, Montero, Wingnut, Toupee wearing Conte, Edgar Beer Goggles Davids, and the great Zinedine Zidane. A man in his first season who was conceived in the six-yard box and born offside. Inzaghi wore this kit. And of course, Del Boy Del Piero scored some of his 32 goals that season. And this was all overseen by the chain-smoking lippy on the sideline. They won the Scudetto this year and reached the Champions League final. The kit I'm wearing is the Aventus away strip of 97-98, Steve. Dan, um, I, I see you've got a robe on there. It is 12.30 in the afternoon that we're recording, but underneath the robe, there seems to be a little football jersey poking out. What have you got on there underneath the robe? Yes, Steve, today my home jersey that I've got on, and I'm delighted to be finally wearing it. Purple in colour, it is the 1997-1998 Fiorentina jersey, and what a cracking jersey it is, sponsored by Nintendo. So guaranteed when you want to put this jersey on, you're automatically pulling the Game Boy out of the top drawer and plugging in Super Mario and the lads and having a bit of crack. And the kit sponsor is Italian Giants Fila. Uh, Fila hasn't come up yet there. We're also maker of fine jumpers and confirmation tracksuits in the early 90s. It has white stripes with white blocks on the arms with red crosses symbolizing the Fiorentina badge. You would also feel like a quality street wearing this jersey, but you would also feel nice and shiny and want to eat yourself. So all good regarding that. It was worn by legends like Batistuta, the Prince of Portugal, Rui Costa, Russian gangster Andrei Kinchelskis, I can't believe it, but he's came up again. Our spaceman, Stefan Schwartz. The man with a monkey for a drinking partner, Edmundo. So yes, today I am wearing the Fiorentina 97-98 jersey, and it is a cracker. Have you got the whole kit, Dan, or is that just the jersey? I've got the whole kit, Steve. I've went for the purple shorts and purple socks today. I'm all out. I'm ready to go. Now, would yeah. you swap your full Fiorentina kit for yes. a night out? With the band who had the number one album in 1997, which is Be Here Now, Oasis. And now we're talking Gallagher Brothers back in 97 when they used to get on. Yes, I would, Steve. I'd go out on the rip with the two boys naked. No doubt about it. As much as I love this kit, I would happily trade it in for a night out with the Gallaghers. <laughs> Great stuff. Now we take a closer look at the best bits and the worst bits of transfer business in 1997 from all around Europe. This is transfer business. Thank you, Stephen. And what a tour of Europe this was. I found some excellent pieces of business and kicking things off with a free transfer in the summer of 97. And it's Fernando Morientes who moved from Real Zaragoza to Real Madrid for nothing, not even a tin of beans. He would go on to win three Champions Leagues in five seasons had a great career, a Spanish international, played a number of international tournaments as well. It would later be rumoured that he signed for Liverpool, but that was, of course, not Fernando. It was his brother, Orlando. In at number four is Bigzente Lizarazu, who moved from Atletico Bilbao to Bayern Munich for just over £4 million. What a bit of business that was. Bayern Munich always leading the way with some bargains. They would also make a profit from selling their other left-back, Christian Ziga, who moved to AC Milan. So a great bit of business overall for Bayern Munich. In at number three 
It's Mark Overmars, the Champions League winner from Ajax, who would sign for Arsenal for £6.7 million. What a signing that was for Wenger. He linked up brilliantly with Dennis Bergkamp as Arsenal would win the double in this season. Much was Mark Overmars the best left midfielder the Premiership has ever seen? Second, Steve, behind Ray and Giggs. Not even close. Okay. In at number two, and this is an unbelievable bargain uh, to get a world-class player for this price. And it's Henrik Larsson who moved from Dutch Giants Feyenoord to Glasgow Celtic for £650,000. <laughs> what a piece of business and a masterstroke that was from Celtic and Wim Janssen. And Henrik would go on to achieve such great things in his career. And I'd already had a good career before this as well, having um, represented Sweden at USA 94. Uh, brilliant talent and what a what a signing by Celtic. Absolutely superb. Larson, the bargain of the century? Definitely up there, Steve. A beautiful man, beautiful hairdo as well. An absolute snip. Henrik, a king up in Scotland and just a, an outrageous footballer, but I always remember his lovely hair. And in at number one, Inter Milan bring the world's best player from Barcelona to the San Siro, and that is Arnain Ronaldo, who signed for Internazionale for £18 million in the summer of '97. An unbelievable bit of business for more than one reason. Not only have Inter Milan signed a world-class striker, it was a masterstroke from the Inter Milan chairman who had contacted Nike and told them that he would bring Ronaldo to Inter Milan. They, Nike did not believe this, but they did say, if you manage to get this done, we will give you the best kit deal on the planet. And a year later, Inter Milan would be sponsored by Nike for a world record at the time. So overall, a brilliant piece of business. Ronaldo would go on to score 34 goals in his first season with Inter Milan, guiding them to the UEFA Cup also. And just for your club as a fan, for your club to sign the best player in the world, that just creates such a buzz. And as we all know, Ronaldo was a world-class talent. Do we know why Ronaldo chose Inter Milan? Well, he, he had agreed a new deal with Barcelona in the summer of 97, but Barcelona went back on promises made salary-wise and Ronaldo felt a little bit let down and insulted after leading Barcelona to the Cup Winners' Cup and the uh, Spanish Cup the season previous under Bobby Robson. Uh, Bobby Robson had been moved on as well and Ronaldo just felt you know what, is this, if this is the way Barcelona are going to operate, I'm going to leave. And basically, Inter Milan, part of the biggest league in the world at this stage, in the late 90s, Serie A, they paid the money, so Ronaldo was happy to go. Was there any other clubs in for him? There was a few. Uh, there was um, there was talk there was talk of Real Madrid, actually, at the time. He was rumoured um, at Newcastle and Manchester United also, although don't think they could have stumped up the cash. Manchester United weren't paying the big wages at that time. And Newcastle had just signed Alan Shearer the summer previous. But they were rumoured and in the mix. But I think Inter Milan were the front runners and they were um, passionate in their pursuit of Ronaldo. And a player can feel that um, when a club really wants them. Brilliant bit of business. Oh, brilliant. Probably, probably the best striker I've ever seen. Um, very strange why Barcelona let him go as well and considering who they replaced him with as well too uh, Sonny Anderson you look back at it as well to the transfer fee that would be peanuts now but uh, uh -huh. an incredible player great finisher and it's hard to look back at 90s football without Ronaldo banging in goals Mush have you got some worst bits of transfer business for us for the 97 window 
Number five, Christophe Dugarry purchased along with Rivaldo and Sonny Anderson to replace Ronaldo, scored no goals and was shipped out in January back to his homeland where he played for Marseille, which suited Barcelona and Dugarry as he was able to regain some type of form to earn up a call-up to the World Cup winning France squad of 98. Number four, Sebastian Abreu from San Lorenzo to Deportivo La Coruña for 10.8 million. The big Uruguayan striker, or in Spanish as they like to refer to him as El Loco, which stands for Madman, he only mustered three goals for Deportivo in six years. Mind you, he was loaned out to no fewer than seven clubs in that time. Deportivo had signed a con man and a bloody journeyman, as he signed for a total of 26 clubs in 11 countries. He's still playing today at the age of 44 as player manager for Boston River. No, this is not an MLS franchise. This is a team that plays in the Uruguayan top flight. Number three, Michel Padovano for £1.7 million from Juventus to Crystal Palace. Steve Koppel had signed the bald baller Lombardo from Juventus and he must have asked him, do you know anybody else on their books that we could get? Well, he only notched one goal for Palace and could not build up a partnership with Neil Shipperley. He was sold the following summer to Mets, where he only scored six goals in the rest of his career. And after retirement in 2006, he was arrested for cannabis trafficking by the Italian Bobbies on the Beat, and he got eight years in prison. At number two, Steve, is your mate, Ibrahim Ba, for £10.8 million from Bordeaux to AC Milan. Possibly one of Milan's worst bit of business of all time. His hairdo was more impressive than his appearances for Milan. One goal in 56 appearances across six seasons. But he still has a Serie A title and a Champions League winner's medal to his name. A man who would end up at Bolton under Big Sam. He would re-sign for AC Milan in the summer of 07, but he only made one appearance off the bench. He is lifelong friends with Maldini. And my number one bit of worse business is Stan Collymore for £7 million from Liverpool to Aston Villa. A dream move for Stan the man at his boyhood club, but it never worked out for him. His form dipped and with a lot of off-the-field issues with Eureka Johnson, he only chalked up six goals in this season and seven goals in 46 appearances across two seasons. He was sent off for a fist fight with Bolton's Andy Todd and Colly Moore accused former teammate Steve Harkness of racial abuse. This was dropped by the FA, but Colly Moore settled this a year later with a horrid tackle on Harkness, where he had to be stretchered off and suffered ligament damage. That's my number one bit of business, Steve, Stan Colly Moore. I've asked the lads to come together with some European flair in the transfer business this week, but much you couldn't stay away from Stan Collymore, could you? <laughs> I had to throw him in, Steve. Oh, he, he absolutely deserves to be in there, and rightly so. Dan, a fan of Stan the Man? Quality player. I remember him as Nuts Forest days, having a great 94-95 season and was linked with all the big the big hitters then in England, Liverpool, Manchester United, uh, Arsenal, so on. Moves to Liverpool, just they had a poor second season, starts rubbing people up the wrong way. Aston Villa take a gamble on him and he was still good enough to demand a big fee, so Liverpool very happy. Uh, he just, you know, would come out years later, Stan obviously had his demons, so sometimes I can fall onto the pitch. Bit of a wasted talent. 
Don't touch the pack. We'll be right back with our Euro match of the week from the San Siro. But first, here's a cracking goal from September 97. Hopkins to Kugel. He's triggered a run with the ball. He's travelled at least 20 yards of that. Colin Henry comes out with a thunderous tackle to stop the thunder from down under. The big Scott Henry with his long locks matching the Leeds bright yellow away kit. It's fallen to Wallace. He's past Jeff Kenner. He's past Honcho. Wallace with a curler. Goal! Tim Flowers, no chance. What a beautiful goal by little Rodney Seymour Wallace. Leeds retake the lead after only 17 minutes. George Graham still shows no sign of emotion. It's Blackburn Rovers 2, Leeds United 3. Caminato. Di Calcio. Italiano. So now it's time for our Euro match of the week and we could not resist going to Serie A this week for Inter versus Fiorentina. Dan, I can see he's getting in the mood already. He's got his pink gazette of paper in front of him. He's got a big, lovely ice cream cone. Is that two flavours there, Dan? I went for strawberry and chocolate today, Stephen. Couldn't resist after uh, getting ready for this battle. I'm heavily influenced by James Richardson here. What a game this was. Inter Milan v Fiorentina, 1997-98. Built as R9 v Batistuta body goal. But it was not R9 in the season 97-98. It was R10. Because Ronaldo would wear the number 10 shirt for Inter Milan in 97-98. With Ivan Zamorano not yet quite ready to give up the number 9. But anyway, Zamorano would be on the bench in this game. Fiorentina travelled with a 3-4-3 with Francesco Taldo and goals to Rosé, Ferracano and Falcone, possible gangster at the back. Andre Kincelskis, Kois, Rui Costa and Serena in midfield. And a front three of Oliveira, Robbiati and Batistuta through the middle. Inter Milan would go with Pagliuca in goals. Mazzano, Bergame and Taribo West at the back with Galante and Frezzi in front of them. Gantz, Simeone, Yorkeyev and the evergreen Zanetti completing their midfield and the one and only Ronaldo up front through the middle. This game started fantastic in a fantastic fashion in an electric atmosphere. Fiorentina started the brightest, however, with Andre Kincelskis taking the ball by the horns and he was absolutely running the game. Any chance Fiorentina got, they gave him the ball and he had Taribo West absolutely tortured. Uh, this would result in Taribo West losing the plot <laughs> halfway through the first half when he hacked Kincelskis down, resulting in Andre Kincelskis tearing ankle ligaments. He would go on to miss a few months for Fiorentina and certainly uh, was undeserved. But Taribo West, as always, takes no nonsense. The game then would come to, come to life with the first real opening after this when Batistuta hit the crossbar from close range. He was in disbelief at the missed opportunity. Right on half-time, however, Yorkeyev stole the ball in midfield with a lovely piece of skill beating two men, fed the yellow weasel Diego Simeone, who played a through ball to Ronaldo, who supplied us with a lovely finish into the bottom corner off the left foot in the 45th minute of the game. We will be thinking now into Milan, are going to be one up at half-time, but Fiorentina said no, not today, with Serena hitting back straight away and stop his time in the first half after linking up with the wonderful body goal by Astuta to make it 1-1. In at the break, 1-1. The intensity to this game is absolutely unbelievable, and it's why so many of us love Serie A in the 90s and at this time. 
second half starts and a mistake by, I can't believe I'm saying this, Javier Zanetti with a poor back pass to Pagliuca. Pagliuca is all over the shop. He doesn't know whether to comfort or stay, stay in his box. He does neither. He just stands still with his short sleeve jersey and his collar up admiring himself. Body goal steals it. 2-1, 47 minutes on the clock. Fiorentina well on top now at the start of the second half. Inter Milan. Oh, goodness me. They came back strong with a triple substitution, bringing on Moriero, Ivan Zamorano, and Dutch utility man, Oren Vinter, uh, in a triple sub to try and make the difference. And this would happen when Zamorano combined with R9 or R10 to play through Moriero in the 72nd minute for a lovely finish to make it 2-2. They would celebrate in unbelievable fashion with Moriero sticking his boot in the air, putting it on Zamorano's knee and Zamorano wiping his boot. It was a brilliant celebration and we've all done it, let's be honest. Fiorentina come back very well, but Astuta, so unlucky, he hits the crossbar one more time inside the six-yard box when he spins Bergome and just slaps it with his left foot, bounces off the bar, Pagliuca once again all over the shop, Inter Milan at sixes and sevens, but somehow scramble a clear when the yellow weasel makes a breakthrough midfield. A crazy passage of play would ensue then 10 minutes later when the ball somehow comes to Fiorentina's uh, midfielder, Serena, and he fluffs a back pass straight through to the magnificent on the day, Yuri Yorkiev, cool as you like, slots past Francesco Tollo, into Milan, 3-2 up, with 10 minutes to go. Fiorentina simply did not have a third goal left in them, and no chances were sadly created. Ronaldo and Yorkiev and Zamorano combining to waste time in the right way and in the right fashion in the corner uh, areas of the Fiorentina half. And Inter Milan see out this unbelievable game, 3-2, to take the points and continue their pursuit of Juventus in Serie A 97-98. A brilliant game. Back to you, Stephen. How did Fiorentina feel to even get a point from this game from the match I watched? They were absolutely all over oh. them. Paliuka battered, battered to so unlucky. Uh, how did Inter come away with three points? They will feel very lucky. And sometimes when you're challenging for a title, you get that bit of luck. Battistuta hits the bar twice. So there's a hat trick possibly for Battistuta. And he, he literally can do nothing with those chances. He comes to him, he strikes it well, and they both hit the bar. So there's two sure goals you would normally have off him. As well, I think Taribo West cleaning Konchelskis out of the game was a masterstroke from the Nigerian centre-back because I do have to say the longer the game would have went on at the San Siro, with Konchelskis' pace, he could have made the difference on the day. Some retro players uh, on show. Who stood out for you uh, in this match? Batistuta for Fiorentina. Uh, an absolute goal machine. I'm going to go for Taribo with S for Inter because I just can't get that image of him sawing down Kinchelskis on the sideline. <laughs> and how he did not get regarded for that is a mystery. Body goal was the beauty and Taribo West was the beast. It Was Taribo West a good player? Yes, he was. You know, you don't get to play for the likes of an Inter Milan and, and represent your country so many times without being a good player. But what he was, was a bit helter-skelter and maybe not the best on the ball, but he was quick, athletic and strong and maybe suited a back three in Italy at the time. But he was capable of some mad mistakes and just losing 
losing his head for a few moments as we see with the with the Kinchelskis challenge. For any listeners who don't know what Terebo West is up to now, he is a devout Christian and he eventually became a pastor after his footballing days and in 2014 Terebo founded a church called the Shelter in the Storm Miracle Ministries of All Nations in Lagos. Mosh, you will be interested to know that Terebo West also was named in this uh, report for Nigerian internationals who were much older than they claimed to be. Former FK Partisan General Secretary said that Terebo West is actually 12 years older than the age that he claimed. I knew it. Another <laughs> Benjamin Button. <laughs> <laughs> that 2010 report also featured JJ Kocha, Nwanku Kanu, and Obafemi Martins, um, who are all retired now. Uh, they're pensioners. <laughs> Hey, it's always uh, rumoured now, no doubt about it. Lads, anything else we want to say about that game um, before we move on? Just that for, for any listeners, go back and watch it if you can and just start to playing yourself with some of the best games in Serie A and get a look at those players. They were absolutely magnificent. So good. And, you know, I was making breakfast this morning and there's so much Football Italia on YouTube, um, there's some uh, great channels on there that you can subscribe to actual full games as well. And I had Juventus versus Inter from 97, 98 on there with Del Piero and Ronaldo and Zaghi, Zidane. Oh, honestly, treat yourselves, listeners. You will not go wrong. My madman of the week is Marco Materazzi, the hard-hitting, harsh-tackling, hot-headed Italian. Every team needs an enforcer, a blocker, a thuggish man. Well, Marco ticked all those boxes. Over 100 yellow cards in his career and 25 red cards. This could have been double, even treble, as his tackles and acts of thuggery in today's modern game would be considered GBH. A man who would play with his heart on one sleeve and the blood of his opponent on the other. Shares his birthday with friend star Matthew Perry, but he certainly had very few friends in football. His star sign Leo, well as we know, Leo is a lion and that's what Matarazzi was, as he was a hot-tempered animal on the pitch. Released as a young man at Lazio and the death of his mother, fired a rage in Marco to succeed. Played in the lower leagues of Syria B and Syria C at the start of his career, which this then got him a move to the Toffee Pennies, that is Everton. A part of the deal, he was given a big house, but Marco just wanted a small flat. He was sent off three times at Goodison Park. One sending off, Marco cried. Don Hutchinson, who was a teammate at the time, said he was the best-dressed man at Goodison Park and he liked his pyjamas. Why the hell did Don Hutchinson see his pyjamas, the sick hen? Don also said Marco did not take too kindly to being nutmegged at training and his eyes would fill with rage. He then signed for Perugia where he two-foot tackled Gattuso. No better man to leave your studs in. He then scored 12 goals in one season for Perugia, which is a record for a defender in Serie A. Marco then got an unlikely move to Inter Milan where they had signed a nutter rather than another striker to add to their squad of 48 players. At Inter, he was given the nickname Matrix. Why, I don't know. Did he look like Keanu Reeves? Who knows? A spot with Nesta at the end of the 0102 season, where Marco was shouting, I won you the title! 
in reference to Perugia's win over Juve at the end of the 2000 season, which helped Lazio and Nesta win the Serie A. And Matarazzi had got one over on the wig-wearing Conte as he hated him. February 04, Matarazzi was on the bench as Inter Milan were tonking Siena 4-0. Marco was encouraging his teammate, Kili Gonzalez, to take on Siena defender Bruno Ceroli, saying the player was not fit to play in Syria. This boiled over after in the tunnel as Bruno, not the boxer, insults were hurled, but Matarazzi had had enough and he sucker punched Bruno in the face, fracturing his lip. This led to a 10-game ban and a £5,000 fine for Inter. Matarazzi did not appeal this. Marco loved the Milan derby and he took spite on Shevchenko. Many's a game he mauled him. On one occasion, he kicked Shevchenko in the mummy and daddy button. Inter teammate Patrick Vieira said he would not sit beside Marco at mealtimes. Matarazzi argued with fellow teammate Julio Cruz on the pitch who would hit a penalty. Only one man winning this penalty. And that was big Marco. He hit the penalty, but it was saved by none other than Alex Manninger. He conceded a penalty in the Milan derby after he fouled Slatten, but Slatten wasn't finished. He wanted revenge, so he kung fu kicked Marco, leaving him in hospital and on the shelf for two weeks. His most notable moment was the 2006 World Cup final, where he played the pantomime villain. People said he got Zidane sent off, but if you ask me, Marco was just doing his job. They had clashed on several set-piece occasions. Zidane said to him, do you want me shirt after the game? Marco replied, no, I'd rather have your sister. Zidane resulting in a three-yard headbutt spear to Matarazzi's chest, a red card, and this was the last time we seen Zidane on the pitch. And that image of him walking down the tunnel with his head down, looking at the World Cup. Marco, though, scored in that final, and he also scored a penalty and has a World Cup winner's medal round his neck for it. Pantomime villain or not, he's still done his goddamn job. He would end his career with five consecutive Scudettos. He helped Inter win the treble. He hasn't done much since, apart from release his autobiography, which is called Uno Vito de Guerrero, which stands for The Life of a Warrior. And that concludes my Madman of the Week, Marco Matarazzi. Don't touch the pack, we'll be right back with a battle of mammoth proportion between Chelsea and Arsenal. But first, here is a lovely little goal from that Inter Milan versus Fiorentina game in Serie A. I hope Kinchelskis is okay after that over-aggressive challenge by Teribo West. Jokiev, he has the ball, he glides past Rui Costa, he's still going. He's past the Fiorentina midfield, oh the Maverick, he's checked back, he finds Simeone. Good first touch by the Yellow Weasel. He sees Ronaldo. He's found Ronaldo. He's found the box. He's found a goal! Goal, 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 goal! Ronaldo, cool as you like, leaves Toldo on his bottom. Into bench in oversized tracksuits, mob Ronaldo. A goal to take the lead here in the battle of R9 versus Batty Goal. Into one, Fiorentina nil, right before half time. Okay, we're back. And Mush, I think you've lined up your mate Chip again, is that right? I have indeed, Steve. Top journalist, big sports enthusiast. It's my mucker and yours, Chip Dunleavy. Over to you, Chip. Hey, guys, I'm back. I've checked out of the SmackDown Hotel and I am on my way to September 1997. Man, that was one hot summer. So, this English League conference game between Chelsea and Arsenal, huh? 
It was stacked! With all the red, white, and blue on show, I got quite emotional, and I wrapped myself in my star-spangled banner to watch this one. Sanford Bridge was rocking, man, and it was packed full of Chelsea hire guys. I'll just run through the rosters. Arsenal started with Siemens, Dickon, Adams, Bold, and Winterburns in defense, an offense of Parler, Pettit, Vieira, and Overmars, and special team players, Burgerkamp and Wright. Chelsea lined out with Dugui the goalie, a defense of Dewberries, Pet Rescue, Le Beef, and Lasso, an offense of Hughes, DiMatteo, Wise, and Poet, with special teams consisting of Vialli and Zola. This was a hard-fought matchup, guys. Lots of yellow flags handed out early on. Chelsea got on the board first when a corner kick was met in the air by Dewberries, who slam-dunked it home. He rose so high to meet the soccer ball, I think he was wearing Air Jordans. The Gunners got the equalization just before the halftime show. Wright used his head to place a soccer ball into Burger Camp's path, and he made no mistake in the end zone, slotting it past to Gooey the goalie. The second quarter started really well for the Gunners. Frank LaBeef and Dewberries went for the same ball in their own end zone, a dumbass move and it fell to Burger Camp, who did what he does best and bammed it into the corner. 2-1, Arsenal. Chelsea soon got back in the game when veteran man U-striker Hughes, who got traded to Chelsea, popped in a cross for that little guy Zola. And the little Italian magician does not miss. Midway through the second quarter, French bald eagle Frank LaBeef got a red flag after an illegal on Burger Camp. Chelsea really started to suck after Frank LaBeef went off and they went down to 10 men. Then Arsenal pushed for that last field goal and it came in the 88th minute like a bat out of hell. Defensive linebacker Nigel Winterburns was as surprised as anyone when his 25 yard thunder strike slammed home into the top corner. 3-2, Arsenal. Arsenal manager Arsene Wenger's glasses were steamed up in the dugout as he double fist-pumped himself in delight. Chelsea manager Rod Gullett was dejected. His sexy soccer proved insignificant against the red-hot Gunners. Arsenal march up to second in the conference with a huge W, and Chelsea will go back to the training facility to work hard on their sexy soccer for game week six. I'm chipped on Levy. It's back to you in the studio, Simon. Moshe, I keep forgetting. Where did you meet Chip again? Yes, Don, I met Chip in the local chip shop. I was in ordering a buttered sausage and chip, and Chip came in, and he couldn't get his head round that there was no hamburger and fries on the menu. So I went over and told him, here, mate, we don't do fries over here. We do homemade chips. So after, we became good pals. And what did he get in the end up? A two-piece fillet special. So for listeners, that is Southern Fried Chicken, Chips, Stuffing and Gravy, all in the one tray. Lovely job. Great feed. So, Dan, a wonderful game here. Five goals between Arsenal and Chelsea. This was the real start of the Wenger experience, wasn't it? Building this team to become uh, Premiership champions. Oh, definitely, Stephen. Well, you know, he, he came in the season previous, but uh, it was really getting to put a stamp on it now. And this was their first big test of 
1997, 1998, and they, they dug in, they stuck with Chelsea. Both teams went at it, hammer and tongs, no doubt about that. It was a really, really entertaining game. But Arsenal just showing that they had the medal for a title push by getting the late winner. And what a goal it was from Nigel Winterburn, of all people. Yeah, he looked as surprised as anyone that he was on the end of that one and that it went in. He, he wasn't quite sure what to do when he scored. Just one of those comes to him and you, you can't resist hitting it no matter what's going on around you. You just see the ball, you're like, oh, I'm having that. And he top corner, straight into the Arsenal crowd then. Um, uh, great stuff. Mush Dan's lover, uh, Dennis Bergkamp, was running the show here for Arsenal, coming up with big goals and big games. Dennis, the flying Dutchman, was prolific in the Premiership. No surprise, Dano had a lot of emotional feelings for the Dutchman. Frank LeBouf's sort of become a, a cult figure for us when we look back at, at 90s football um, for for personal reasons as well. But uh, how good was, was Frank LeBouf, Dan? He was a brilliant centre-back, um, French international, World Cup winner as well. Had his mad moments too, but he was good on the ball. He was missing that centre-back partner and he would let his frustrations get the better of him at times. Um, he wasn't the best man to be leading your back four when you were losing a game, um, as he would often <laughs> go for a wee dance in the midfield and up front and you'd be left very short at the back. <laughs> so... He, he wasn't the best man to lead your team when losing. Um, also, just in the Chelsea team, I think they were uh, they had some great attacking options with Zola, Hughes and Viale. Um, Poyet had signed. Um, they'd won, a, won some cups in, in the 90s, which probably summed them up in the late 90s. Not quite ready for a, a title push, but a good, solid cup team. This against the Zools. This week's Balls Against the Wall quiz is sponsored by the ball that the great John Barnes slotted past Ludic McCluskey in Newcastle United's 1-0 win away to West Ham United in September 1997. This ball is still available to this day and can be found in John Barnes's local park where he is regularly seen uh, doing Q&As alongside his ball and rapping to it. Go and get yourself a glimpse and photograph with this ball if you can. Yes, welcome to the Balls Against the Wall quiz. The quiz where I pit Dan against Mush to see who has the best football knowledge. Dan is 4-0 up in the series. He has stormed into a serious lead. Mush needs to save some face here with a victory today. Okay, lads, today all the questions are about the 97-98 season. First of all, I need your player buzzers. And this week, it's Italian football stadiums. Dan, what is your player buzzer? Adio Deli Alpi. Mush, what is your player buzzer? San Siro. Okay. We are blessed to have in our presence the legend that is Ua Cantona, Eric Cantona. Hello, Eric. Well, Eric, you doing much gardening lately? I am Cantona. Ah, great stuff, Eric. Okay, so Eric is keeping the scores. Lads, you will know when the quiz is over when you hear this noise. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Are we ready? Oh, absolutely. Ready for this. Yes. Great. And this week we are playing for the number two single from that week in September. And that is one of Mush's favourites. It's the MIB Men in Black by Will Smith, Mush. You, oh, you're dying to I get have this to one. Get on the, I have to get on the board here. I need that tune. Question one. Who won the Scottish Premier Division in 97-98? San Siro. Yes, Mush. Celtic. Correct. 
Who managed Rangers? Stadio Zero. Oh, I think that was Dan. Walter Smith. Correct. Who finished top scorer in Scotland with 32 goals? Stadio Deli Alpe. Yes, Dan. Henrik Larsson. Incorrect. Mush. Oh. Ah, Steve. It was Marco Negre, the Italian who played for Rangers with 32 goals. What a shout. Who won Serie A in 97-98? Stadio Deli Zero. Dan. Juventus. They did. Who managed Juventus? Sun Zero. Yes, Mosh. Marcelo Lippi. I knew that. Correct. Which Sony product sponsored the Juventus kit? Sun Zero. Yes, Mosh. Sony mini disc. It's correct. Which kit manufacturer made SC Milan's kits? Stadio Deli Alpi. Yes, Dan. Lotto. Correct. To the nearest 10,000, what is the capacity of the San Siro? Stadio Deli Alpi. Yes, Dan. 68,000. Incorrect. Mush. 79? Oh, he's so good. It's 80,018. Oh, who won La Liga in 97-98? Dario Deli Alpe. Yes, Dan. Real Madrid. Incorrect. Mush. Barcelona. Correct. Oh. Who finished top scorer in La Liga that year? San Siro. Oh. Yes, Mush. It's a punt. Sonny Anderson. Incorrect. Dan. Raul. Incorrect. It was Christian Vieri. He got 24 oh. goals for Atletico Madrid. What? Unbelievable. Which multi-time Europa League winners were relegated and had to play in 97-98 in the Spanish second division? Stadio Deli Alpe. Yes, Dan. Sevilla. Correct. Absolute load of nonsense. Absolute load of nonsense. Oh, great stuff there, lads. Uh, a bit of a European and Scottish feel to this week's 97-98 quiz. Very, very tight again, as it always is. We have to go over to Ua with the scores. What are the scores, Eric? Daniel. Catra, Conier, Sank. Oh, Mush has won one! I can't believe it. Five to four. the Maldini of quizzes! <laughs> and there was no brave involved! So, 4-1. I, I finally I, beat them. You were very unlucky last week with, with, with Smerton, to be fair. Oh. Um, but Mush is back in the game. It's 4-1. And, Mush, you know what that means. Whirling its way to you. It's the MIB. Men in black. Oh, what a tune. Are you more of a Tommy Lee Jones or a Will Smith man? Oh, Will Smith all the way, Steve. Loved him from his Fresh Prince days. Great stuff. It's match of the week. Bloody hell. Yes, folks, welcome to match of the week. It's a massive UEFA Cup matchup between... Glasgow Giants, Celtic and Liverpool at Celtic Park. But don't worry, we've got Mush the Matchman standing by. The game has just finished. Mush, what has happened at Celtic Park? Yes, Steve. Celtic, moments away from a famous win, have had it snatched from their grasp by a moment of magic from leader of the Spice Boys, Steve Majestic McManaman. To end this so-called Battle of Britain 2-2, for the love of God, it's a UEFA Cup tie on a Tuesday night. This late wonder goal from Stevie McManaman had earlier in the game looked as lethal as a Subutio player had tipped the balance in the Merseysiders' favour. Very cruel on Celtic, who were tipped as complete rank outsiders pre-kick-off by bookmakers. Ha! 
What the hell do they know apart from how many of them little pains they get stolen every week by angry punters? Celtic have given a goddamn great account of themselves here, as this tie is definitely still in the melting pot when we go to Anfield in a fortnight's time, where Celtic have nothing to lose and hope, as there always is, when the opposition goalkeeper is David James. Celtic Park was bouncy before kickoff, as fueled on by a few tins of super tea, the boys, set of supporters, threw off. You'll never walk alone with the klaxon to get this battle underway. Once I walked home alone after a night out as Dano abandoned me to go get a curry pot noodle. The action got underway as Celtic looked shaky as four minutes in. Tommy Turbo Boyd, suspect casual pass, straight to Steve McManaman, whose chance from outside the box couldn't get any real zing on it. Didn't have the legs it lacked and it's straight to the keeper. Celtic couldn't shake off these early nerves and had shades of Jimmy White as only two minutes later, Liverpool exposed the Celtic back line, cut them open like a tin of beans by Carl Heinz, Branson Beans Riedler, cleverly picked out Michael Owen, who left Alan Stubb my effing toe stubs for dust. Owen, cool as you like, planted an Alan Titchmarsh over Jonathan Gould, the 17-year-old boy wonder. No, not Batman's sidekick. His first European goal. He should be at home watching his heroes, Jimmy Corkle and Sinbad and Brookside. Instead, he's in for the injured Robbie Fowler to give Liverpool the lead. 1-0. Celtic suspect defending continued as Boyd having a mirror. His poor touch gifted Owen, who slipped Spice Boy Steve McManaman in on goal. But he took the biscuit and he thought he had time to make a brew and he failed to get a shot away. Very similar to him failing to get his big move away from Anfield during the summer. All Liverpool in the first 20 minutes. And finally Celtic got their nerves under control without having to neck a swift one. As Simon Donnelly let rip from outside the box when Larson was better placed, his strike was straight at Calamity James. Rob Jones then cut the Celtic back line open with his pass, finding Owen, who gave Alan Stubbs the Linford Christie treatment again. He looked to be in and goal, but Gould came out and he destroyed Owen with a clean tackle. The Celtic back line choking for some high-quality H2O and begging for the half-time whistle suffered another blow on the stroke of half-time when Reggie Blinker came off worse with a challenge with Rob Jones and the Dutchman was carried off on a stretcher. Get well soon, Reggie. Half-time, Celtic nil, Liverpool won. Celtic came out of the start of the second half with Phil O'Donnell replacing Blinker. Surely a response from the boys, but no, the Celtic backline were at it again, playing musical statues from a corner as Carl Heinz remembered to tap the end of the bottle Riedler at a free header, but again, Gould pulled off a save to keep it at 1-0. On the 53rd minute, though, little Jackie McNamara gave Bjornaby the bedroom eyes and line danced his way past him. He played a 1-2 with Burley. Ghosted past Matteo, lashed a left-footed volley past James. Despite James in a shocking all-orange kit, he looked more like a traffic cone. Parkhead explodes thanks to Dano's with Jackie McNamara. 1-1. The game was now a battle as Boyd and big-time Charlie Paulins were both booked. It's a petty pull-down on Burley. Come on, Governor. I thought you were a hard man. Celtic had more banks than Zebedee. They were having their best spell of the game and Donnelly crashed the underside of the bar to the relief of Calamity James. Wayne Horse then slipped a ball through to Henrik Larson, who left Mark Wright for dust and needed an oxygen tank. 
Larson was breathing down on goal. Out came James and only one thing was happening here. Apparently, the giant traffic cone had taken down the beautiful Larson with his glowing set of dreadlocks. The ref pointed to the spot and showed James a yellow card. Surely this should have been a red. Well, I would have booked him before the game had even started for wearing that horrendous kit. Simon Donnelly stepped up. Smash, bang, wallop. The sound you may associate with Adam West in the 60s. But these were the sounds of Donnelly as he produced a pen to crash off the bar and into the back of the net. Goal, 2-1 Celtic. Paradise at Parkhead. Could Celtic hold on for a huge victory? They started to ooze confidence. The type you get when you get a bet up and you strut into the bookies to cash in. Celtic were passing the ball about. No real sign of any real threat from Liverpool. And finally, Celtic's back line had staggered those early nerves. But then with a minute to go, Spice Boy McManaman finally delivered. He picked the ball up deep in his own half. Hurled by lovely remarks about his hairdo from the Celtic home crowd. He skinned Wee Horse with the first touch and move that John Revolta would have been proud of. McManaman set off on a 262-yard dribble of the ball. The ball stuck to his foot. He must have had a kickmaster as a child. He dribbled unmarked, untouched, to the end of the 18-yard box. And this amazing run, he matched it with a beautiful curling finish past school and clipped it off the beans and toast and into the net. What a goal! 2-2! The final whistle was met. Celtic's heart's broken. Liverpool's bacon saved. 50,000 fans have been treated to a proper UEFA Cup tie. Not the Battle of Britain, as there was only three bookings. I can see Kenny Dalglish in the crowd. He never turns down a free ticket. But who did the King's loyalties lie within tonight? Celtic are still in this tie, but they may not have Reggie Blinker for the return. I'll light a candle for the Dutchman tonight. As for Liverpool, they have work to do. Roy Evans knows he has serious talent further up the pitch with Spice Boys and the boy Wonder Owen. I hope someone take Brookside for him. Now get him to bed! But question marks over the back line and the traffic cone of a keeper. This UEFA Cup tie is finished here. Celtic 2, Liverpool 2. Back to you in the studio, Steve. Oh, must have match, man, at Celtic Park. Oh, somebody get that one some oxygen, some water, a lay down. Dan, two giants going head to head here on a Tuesday night on BBC One. Uh, can you remember watching this game live? I do remember, Stephen, as a part of BBC One's, uh, they used to have the UEFA Cup and the Cup Winners' Cup games. And uh, really fascinating to see uh, that for the first time, would have seen Celtic play a lot of the big English clubs and testimonials. But this would have been the first time that I would have been able to see them in a proper cup game against the Premier League side. And it was a, a cracking game. 2-2 draw. Loads of things happening. Players getting stuck in. The atmosphere at Celtic Park was unbelievable. And some legendary players on show for both clubs and loads of skillful and quality players as well. Very, very good game to watch. How did you think Celtic fared against their English opposition? I think Celtic dug in. They made a lot of signings in the summer of 97, so they were still finding their feet at this early stage in the season uh, under Wim Janssen. But I think they hung in and did really, really well against a very attacking and forward-thinking Liverpool team under Roy Evans um, and probably deserved to hang on to their 2-1 win for the hard work that they put in, particularly in the second half. But, you know, 
you got a player like Steve McManaman on the pitch and England happened and he was one of the best players um, in England at the time and one of the best wingers in Europe. And that, that equaliser is an absolute cracker. Yeah, if you haven't seen it, listener, please go on YouTube and I actually watch the highlights of the whole game on YouTube. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. Celtic, of course, um, very unlucky then in, in the, the replay at Anfield mm. with a nil-nil draw and uh, going mm. out on the old dreaded away goals. Yes, very unlucky. I, I remember the second leg and uh, it was a bit more of a slog of a fur. Both teams cagey. Like, um, maybe we'll touch on it further down the line, but Celtic kind of not wanting to go all out attack because the Liverpool's attacking threat and then Liverpool happy with the two away goals and worried about Celtic scoring. So it was kind of, of a cagey affair and Liverpool, Liverpool um, hang on to, to go through on the away goal rule. And then get knocked out by Strasbourg for those listeners who wanted to follow Liverpool's plate to the UEFA Cup. Oh, unbelievable. They, they'd been unlucky a couple of times in the late 90s um, in the Cup Winners' Cup and UEFA Cup Liverpool and just another one of those um, European upsets that you would see all the time in the 90s, particularly in the knockout competitions yeah. of the UEFA Cup and Cup Winners' Cup. The, those games were so unpredictable. And... Um, think as well possibly the English sides took the earlier rounds a little bit lately yeah. um, so were the European teams the likes of a Strasbourg would have rested players and been really working towards playing Liverpool for a few weeks just to touch on the new version of, of the UEFA Cup now in the Europa League do you think that it really suffers from the group stages you know like here straight away it's a knockout the whole season is on the line in, in one match in Europe. Um, do you think yeah. that it, the new format really suffers from not having that? I do think it suffers, particularly in those secondary competitions. I do believe there should be a group phase in the Champions League, but in my opinion, those knockout ties from round one are brilliant and yeah. anyone can win them over the two legs. Gives everyone a, a chance to really go at each other and the Europa League certainly misses that. Um, and then, you know, the Champions League third place group teams join it and mm. oh, it's, it's, it gets it's messy doesn't yeah, it hard to get motivated to, to enjoy watching it and I do miss the Cup Winners Cup as well but uh, certainly the old UEFA Cup some wonder players playing it and uh, there was some great games along the way to enjoy This week's Maverick of the Week is the one and only, the legend, it's Henrik Larsson. What a player Henrik Larsson was and uh, we loved watching Henrik Larsson grow up for all the clubs that he played for. Well liked and adored across the uh, Europe and the world for representing the many clubs that he did and a hero in his homeland of Sweden. His early career started with Hogeborgs where he spent 1989 to 1991 uh, growing up there through their youth system. He would then get his move to neighbours Helsingborg um, from 91 to 93, where he would really start to come into his own, develop his skills, work on his, uh, his footwork and get some goals. Back then as well, Henrik could be used and seen as a white man also in his younger years. In the summer of 93, he impressed at Helsingborg so much that he got a move to Feyenoord, which began his uh, great relationship with uh, the wonderful Wim Janssen. He would spend four years with Feyenoord doing really well, again, being used as a wide man at times, but more often than not, through the middle. 
He would also represent Sweden at USA 94, scoring in the World Cup as a young man in his early 20s and helping them to a third place finish, losing out to Romario's Brazil in the semi-final. He played with um, legends like Thomas Ravelli, the great uh, Gothenburg goalkeeper, and 19 Andersons. He would move to Celtic in the summer of 1997 and for the sum of £650,000 and a signing probably not picked up by too many at the time. But what a career Henrik had at, at Glasgow Celtic, uh, winning everything he possibly could in the Scottish game. And just, you know, the biggest stat for me, because he is a striker, and the most important stat is his goals. And in 221 appearances for Celtic, Henrik Larsson scored 175 goals. Now, people can say what they want about whatever league players play in and the calibre of players you're playing against. But if you're a striker and the ball comes your way, no matter what you're doing, the only thing that matters is how many times you can put it in the net. And to hit the target 175 times in 221 games is absolutely astonishing. Henrik would become world-class at Celtic. I don't know how many bids Celtic would turn down for Henrik over the years. And Henrik was certainly never tempted to leave Celtic also. He's a very loyal man, an intelligent man as well. But in the summer of 04, he would run out of contract. And with the cycle of his great Celtic team with Sutton and Petrov and Bobo Baldi and a few other players coming to an end, he would decide to join Barcelona on a free transfer. And what a piece of business and a masterstroke this was by Frank Reichard, the Dutch manager of Barcelona at the time. He would be used as a squad player, but would contribute to the development of Samuel Eto'o and Lionel Messi, linking up very well with Ronaldinho. Henrik would get his starts. He would be used as a sub. There were games he wouldn't play. There were games he would be rested for, particular games. And he helped get Barcelona back on the map after suffering for a few years in the early noughties. And they would win La Liga and the Champions League while Henrik was there. And he would be most remembered by Barcelona fans and neutral football fans in general, and sadly Arsenal fans, for the impact he makes in the 2006 Champions League final when he comes on with Arsenal down to 10 men and turns the game on its head with two assists for Barcelona and just this intelligent play, one-touch passing, um, setting Barcelona up for two goals. And he gets exactly what he deserves, which is a European trophy after um, sadly and emotionally missing out on the UEFA Cup with Celtic in the summer of 2003. He leaves Barcelona and goes back to his homeland and rejoins Helsingborg in the summer of 2006. Many people would think this would have been Henrik's swan song and he would retire in Sweden under the radar, banging in a few goals for his local side and moving into management. But no, Henrik's quality was far from diminishing and he gets a call from Sir Alex Ferguson and joins Manchester United on loan for three months and despite only being there for three months he pushes United helps push United to the Premier League title in 2007 having a great impact again a touching on Barcelona on younger players like Cristiano Ronaldo Wayne Rooney Louis Saha Darren Fletcher and linking up very well and bringing extra experience already added by the likes of Ryan Giggs and Paul Scholes and Gary Neville Sir Alex Ferguson was a great admirer of Henrik Larsson for many years and it would come to light that he'd actually turned Manchester United down a few times. And again, I'm sure Henrik turned down other European giants. And this again highlights, I suppose, how big Celtic are across the world. Sir Alex Ferguson would attempt to keep Henrik Larsson at, Celtic, uh, at Manchester United for the season. But Henrik, as ever, an honest 
respectable man at his core. He says no. He had gave Helsingborg his word that he would return and help them through their season. And that he does. But finishing off with a goal in his last game against Lille for Manchester United in the Champions League, United would also give and reward Henrik Larsson with a Premier League winner's medal. Returns and retires at Helsingborg. I want to touch on his international career now. And he played for Sweden in not one, but two, three, four, five, six major competitions, scoring and assisting goals in every tournament that he played. And he came out of international retirement on three occasions also, um, linking up across um, across two decades for Sweden with so many names, Slatan Ibrahimovic, Melberg, Freddie Lundberg, Jesper Blankfist, and was a key part of everything that Sweden um, achieved across those 20 years. He got in the team of the tournament in the Euro 2004 Championships and he also won the goal of the tournament for a fantastic header against Bulgaria. His honours across his career include two Dutch Cups, four Scottish Leagues, two Scottish Cups and League Cups, two La Liga, one Super Copa, one Champions League and one Premier League, which he was specially rewarded for the impact he had on Manchester United. He would win Swedish Player of the Year four times. SPL a Golden Boot five times, SPL Player of the Year only twice. I'm surprised at that, but again, still won it and was well recognised. European a Golden Boot winner in 2001 with 53 goals. You imagine scoring so many goals in a season for your club. He was also uh, won the UEFA Golden Player for representing Sweden in 2003 and was placed in the Scottish Football Hall of Fame. He is held in the highest regard. Respected and respectful, world-class talent with skill, a born winner, current Barcelona number two, and an absolute legend of the game. I think it can speak for a lot of people when they say Henrik Larsson is a legend, a world-class player, and will not be forgotten. Big Brucey's bedtime bath, nice and warm, full of suds. A scented candle, rubber duck. In the bath, Brucey don't give up dreams of passes to be. Dreams of passes to be. Okay, Dan, I'm ready. I've got the story ready. Can you just check that Brucey's okay and ready in his bath? Brucey, are you okay in the bath, sir? You got in nice and early this week. Got a nice relaxing day planned tomorrow. You're off to watch the Titanic with your Birmingham manager, Trevor Francis, which will be a great but emotional experience. So get your relaxation station on now, get the radox in and have a good time splashing about. Okay, Brucey. This next story is from your good friend, Kevin Keegan. As for Espria, he was another interesting character. We signed him from Parma, and I dread to think what he made of the weather when he landed at Teesside Airport. Peering out from a fur jacket with those huge brown eyes in the middle of a northeast snowstorm. I had a glass of wine with him over lunch at the team hotel, and when I asked if he'd like to go on the bench for our game against Middlesbrough that afternoon, I explained it was purely so he could get a feel for it. It was never my intention to bring him on, but midway through the second half, we were losing 1-0 and in need of some inspiration. I gambled. I put on Tino and his trickery turned the game on its head, setting up Steve Watson for the equaliser and creating enough mayhem for Les to stick in the winner. Not that it was always like that with Tino. 
I had to take him off in one game because of his lack of endeavour, though it was only once. He was also banned after an off-the-ball clash with Keith Curl of Manchester City, and the newspapers had a field day about his partying lifestyle, his relationship with a porn queen, and his apparent habit in Colombia of pulling out a gun and spraying bullets into the air. Tino had got himself in trouble with the police by firing a gun during the New Year celebrations in his hometown of Chulua. The fallout from that incident had followed him to England, and that meant we never saw him on Thursdays because he was on probation and had to report to the Colombian Embassy in London once a week. A spree of scoring statistics for Newcastle, nine goals and 48 appearances are not going to knock anyone over. And when he signed for us, I'm pretty sure a lot of people were thinking, mm, do they really need another player? His timekeeping could also be pretty dubious. But he was another one of those whose strengths outweighed his weaknesses. And similar to David Batty, I never understood why so many people outside Newcastle wanted him to carry the can for us throwing away the league to Manchester United. Aspria should never have been made the scapegoat. They loved him to bits on Teesside and still eulogise about his Champions League hat-trick against Barcelona in the 97-98 season. By then, of course, I was long gone. Good night, Brucey. Sleep tight. And don't let Gary Pallister bite. Now it's the part of the pod where we pick our next player for our Simpsons lookalike footballers 11. So far we've got McBean, Peter Schmeichel in the bags, Jacques de Bowler, Giles Grimondi in midfield alongside Dr. Nick Riviera, also known as David Silva. And of course, the yellow weasel, Diego Simeone. So it's now on to my pick for this week. And lads, We've concentrated on the keeper. We've concentrated on midfield. Now it's time for a striker to join this team. That's right. We oh, need, lovely. We need a goal scorer. Our goal scorer is in the form of Simpsons character, Frederick Freddy Joe Quimby. That's right. It's Freddy Quimby, also <laughs> known as the nephew of Mayor Joe Quimby. Now, Freddy Quimby. Oh, dear. Joe, <laughs> dear. Freddie Quimby is a very controversial character in The Simpsons. He's only appeared a couple of times, but when he did appear, he was accused of beating a French waiter, and he was later acquitted. And then Homer spotted him in a line to register as a sex offender. (laughs) Our player isn't that bad in his personal life, but our player has been caught with his pants down on a couple of occasions, and he is Chelsea... French striker, Olivier Giroud. Now, I know what you're thinking, lads. This is a 90s and 2000s podcast, Steve. Giroud's only about uh, in the modern day. Well, you'd be wrong, Dan, because Giroud (laughs) started out with your French lover, Yuri Jorgaev, at Grenoble. Unbelievable. Yes, French League 2, Grenoble. And um, he started out with them in 2005. He scored... Only two goals in 25 games, but uh, he would go on from there to then play for Montpellier and make it into the big leagues. But yes, we have got a dead ringer for Freddie Quimby and Olivier Giroud. And a man who can control McBean's big long kickouts. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, smush. Like definitely. This, definitely. this team is taking shape, man. Oh, oh, Dan, Dan, that's the door. Who is that? Ah, it's postman Pat Rice. Pat, how are you doing? Very best, Steve. Oh, good stuff, Pat. Oh, you've got a letter for me. Nice one. Cheers. Um, Pat, what's the crack today? Oh, not, not much, Steve. You know, just do me rounds. Daniel, did you know in December of 1987 that over 700 kids suffered epileptic attacks due to an episode of Pokemon? Were you one of these kids? And did you manage to catch them all? Pat, I did not know that, but I did catch them all, Pat. So thanks for asking. Oh, that's good to know, Daniel. Here, Pat, should you not be getting on with the rest of your rounds? You're probably right, Stephen. These Amazon boys have me run ragged. Right. All the best, lads. See you next week. Cheers, Pat. Postman Pat Rice there. Lads, I've just opened this. <clears throat> Dear Jumpers for Goalpost team, I was delighted to be part of the security team that guarded the Scotland squad during France 98. To be honest, the team were great and very well behaved. It was injured player Gary McAllister that we had to keep a close eye on. Gary was an integral part of the team that qualified, but missed the finals through injury. But he still came along for the ride. His number one job in France was trying to find ways for the players to escape the hotel to go on a bender. We did our best to keep them at the hotel, but I know McAllister sneaked a few out on the odd occasion in the shadows. I had a great time at the tournament and we spent most of our days having a kickabout on the beach with the staff. We got the French interpreter for the team involved one day and he ended up with a broken leg. <laughs> but the less said about that, the better. After the team were sent home early, we stayed around and took advantage of the nice rooms, private chef and pool that was already paid for by the Scotland FA. Most of the team had went home, but Kevin Gallagher hung around with us for the two days and we had a brilliant time. Keep up the good work with the pod, lads. Gavin. P.S. If you don't believe me that I am a security manager at the football, I have enclosed a photo of me taking charge of the 1995 UEFA Cup second round tie between Wraith Rovers and Bayern Munich at Easter Road. Jurgen Klinsmann scored twice and Bayern Munich won 2-0. And there is the photo, lads. What do you think about that, eh? That is class. Just the stuff we want to see. Great stuff there. Um, a lovely letter from Gavin. Thank you, Gavin. And they... Uh, Hopefully, Postman Pat Rice will bring us more mail next week. I hope so. Remember, folks, you can get in touch with your football stories by email at jumperspodcast at gmail.com. On Twitter, our handle is at jumpersforgoal4. That's at jumpers, F-O-R, goal, followed by the number four. And on Facebook, just search for at jumperspodcast. I'm afraid that is it for this week's pod, but we will be back next week. Dan, what have we got in store? Oh, Stephen, we have a packed season, 1993-94, but we're going to take a look at some of the teams that were in the Premier League at the time, such as Glenn Hoddle, Swindon Town, who he uh, brought to the Premier League and left for Chelsea as player-manager. We're going to look at Joe Royals, Oldham. We're going to look at uh, Kenny Douglas, Blackburn, and everything to do with Jack Walker. I'm really, really excited to look at these teams and get a feel for all the players that played in the Premier League in the early days. And it's going to be a cracking pod. So, it's good night from me and it's good night from Dan. Say good night, Dan. Good night, Dan. And it's good night from Mush, the matchman. Say good night, Mush. Good night, Mush. See you next week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 